Please open your Bible to Matthew 19. Matthew 19. And this morning we're going to look together at a very short story, a very simple story, but this is still God's Word for us. In fact, even though this story is so simple, God saw fit to preserve it in each of the first three Gospels, both Matthew, or all of Matthew, Mark, Luke. They all include this little story in their Gospel. In other words, there was something so important and significant about this this seemingly mundane story that they each wanted to record it for their readers. But before we get to the short, simple story, I want us to consider the context of this story. And last week we saw how there are always those who come to thwart, to to derail the mission and purpose of Jesus, right? And Matthew 19 opens up with Jesus setting out in the direction of Jerusalem. And he's going to Jerusalem to suffer and to die. This This is why he came. And we saw how the Pharisees come. And they come to him and ask him, Amidst Jesus healing these large crowds of people, they want to come and talk to him about divorce. And we saw Jesus' wisdom in in reshaping the conversation around God's good design for marriage from the very beginning of creation. And after that interaction with Jesus and the Pharisees, then from an unexpected source of distraction uh, comes the disciples' statement about not being married at all. And we see how Jesus, in his wisdom, handles that and responds to that. Now, perhaps the disciples are starting to notice this theme, this theme of of people bringing distraction to Jesus as he continues on his mission. And maybe they're even having their eyes open to their role in distracting Jesus from what he comes to do. Perhaps they're better understanding the priority of Christ's kingdom, the importance of what Jesus has come to do. Perhaps they're getting a better sense of of the part that Jesus has for them in all of this. His plans to see the gospel of his kingdom spread throughout the world. And it's with this in mind that we come to our text. On the heels of answering the disciples' statement about singleness, we look together at Matthew 19, 13. And if you have your copy of God's word, look at verse 13 with me. Then children were brought to him, to Jesus, that he might lay his hands on them and pray. I'm going to stop there. Now, this is not all that unusual, that parents would want to bring their children to a holy man to be blessed. But the disciples knew that this was not just any holy man. You see, this was Jesus, the man who just healed large crowds. This was Jesus, the one who has confounded those who thought they were so wise. This is Jesus, the the teacher who in his wisdom has given himself to teaching the beauty and blessing of life in his kingdom. There is no one wise as he is, no one powerful as he is, as he calms a storm, as he raises the dead to life, as he heals diseases. These parents clearly have no idea who Jesus is. You see, there's this long line of people eager to get to Jesus. There are needy people. There are important people. There are important and needy people. You don't just walk up to Jesus all willy-nilly with your little children in tow. So look at how the disciples respond in verse 13. Children were brought to Jesus that he might lay his hands on them and pray. That sounds good to our ears. The disciples rebuked the people. Now we don't know what kind of commotion this caused. Were the disciples trying to be discreet about this, like an usher might at, at, uh, at some churches and kind of usher the, usher the kids out? Or were they trying to act important? 
Like, just kind of stand up as bodyguards. Uh Uh-uh. You don't come any further. We don't really know. But what we do know is what Mark tells us in Mark 10, 14. Mark just says this. Jesus saw it. So what the disciples were doing to rebuke these parents bringing their children? Jesus saw it. Of course he did. And look at his response in verse 14. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. Now Jesus takes this opportunity to, to welcome these children, to rebuke his rebuking disciples, for there are things that they need to learn, and we need to learn, about God and his kingdom through this story. Now there are three things that I want to highlight from this brief text, three things that we would do well to notice. And the first is this, the priority of humility in God's kingdom. The priority of humility in God's kingdom. And Jesus says this, to such as these children belongs the kingdom of heaven. What does this mean? Like, we don't talk like that. Jesus' main point becomes clear, especially when we read Mark and Luke. They both include Jesus' next comment. And Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So Jesus is not speaking only of children. He's speaking of those who are like children. And Jesus points to the quality of those who belong to his kingdom. They are humble, like children. Now, what does it mean to be humble like a child? I know several children, and while sometimes they are humble, I wouldn't normally describe them as humble children. It's not the first adjective I would use. What does Jesus have in mind when he says this? What Jesus has in mind is less about a humility that comes through maturity and more about a humility that acknowledges reality. Now, we tend to define humility in terms of of deference, and this is right and good and biblical. So we consider someone else's interests more important than our own. We defer to them. That is humility. And it's something that we learn, something that we put on. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It doesn't really come to us just naturally of the flesh because by nature we are selfish. By nature we consider what we want as the most important. That's humility that comes through maturity. But there's another form that humility takes, and it's a humility that acknowledges the reality of our inability, the reality of our need, of our natural helplessness. And we might call this humility dependence. Consider a baby boy or baby girl. She is unable to meet any of her own needs. She cannot feed herself. She cannot care for herself. She cannot clean herself. She cannot solve any of her own problems. This little baby, this child, is entirely dependent on others to be sustained. And so she can only look outside of herself, away from herself, for any of her needs to be met. The same is true for all of us. We are dependent people through and through. Sure, we may feel like we have some power over our lives, some ability to meet our own needs, but the reality is, it doesn't matter who you are. As those who have been created... We are always dependent. We are all always dependent. Now, I could ask you how you keep your heart beating. How do you do that? What do you have to do with that? I could ask you how you make sure you have enough air in your lungs. Like, have you been thinking about that this morning? 
or how you keep all of your cells together. But I'll just ask one question. Have you ever thought about how much you blink? I hadn't until this morning, actually. Never really thought about how much I blink. I know I blink every day. Sometimes I've had staring contests and tried not to blink for an extended period of time. But I've never considered counting my blinks. The average person blinks 15 to 20 times a minute. And so this means that each waking hour, you blink about 1,000 times. Over the course of a year, you probably blink somewhere between 5 and 7 million times. This is what I thought was the craziest. You spend, because of how long you blink, you spend roughly 10% of the time you're awake blinking. 10% of your waking hours are spent blinking. And you essentially have nothing to do with it. In this process, you're, you're entirely dependent in a way. It just happens over and over again and again. You blink. We all have this need to blink. It keeps our eyes clean and healthy. It gives our eyes oxygen so that they can see. It lets our brain rest and our mind to focus. There's all these advantages to blinking. But we aren't responsible for it. We are dependent. We are dependent upon our creator, upon the one who created us, the one who upholds all things by the word of his power. We're dependent on the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will, dependent on the one in whom all things hold together. He makes it happen. So we should be humble. But we should not just be humble because of our natural dependence. We should be humble because of our spiritual dependence. We should have, we must have, what I'm going to call a gospel humility. Now, gospel humility is what is necessary to belong to the kingdom of heaven. This humility, although it's necessary, it's not something that we do. It's not something that does anything. But like a young, hungry, and needy child, it simply receives what's offered. You see, we're all in desperate need to be saved from ourselves, to be saved from our sin, to be saved from the tyranny of the devil. And we are completely hopeless in ourselves. We can't do anything to save ourselves. We can't do anything to save ourselves. Now, when you hear that, does it offend you? Does it offend you to know that you are a sinner? The Bible describes you as someone who is dead in your sin, as lost and without hope. Is it hard for you to hear that you deserve condemnation and righteous judgment for who you are and the decisions you've made? Talk about a declaration that flies in the face of our culture today. The reality is that if this is offensive to you, perhaps you have not put on this gospel humility. Gospel humility, rather than being offended at this truth, it loves the gospel. It holds fast to what Jesus has done in rescuing us from our sin, in taking on our condemnation, in delivering us from the devil. If we do not rightly recognize that all that we have been saved from, we will never appreciate and love the glorious truth of what God has done to save us by his grace. We cannot do it, but God has done it. And gospel humility looks to him and depends on him. Jesus says here that his kingdom belongs to those who are dependent like these children who put on this gospel humility and receive his grace. So, brothers and sisters, let us be like these children. Jesus is saying that the only way to be part of his kingdom, the only way to belong to his kingdom, is to pursue a dependence like a child. We are nothing but dependent people, so we should act like it, relying not on ourselves, but wholly and entirely upon the grace of God for our salvation. 
All we have, all we need, all we want is in Jesus. Now we tend to read and remember this story based on the role that children play in it. But I think there is something important that we, we miss if that's all we see. And the second thing we would do well to consider from this passage is this. We've looked at the, the priority of humility in God's kingdom. Second, the place of parenting in God's kingdom. The place of parenting in God's kingdom. Look at the beginning of verse 13. Matthew says, Then children were brought to him. Now remember these, these children, they're, they're young, they're little, they're dependent. They did not escape from their parents and come to Jesus on their own. They did not see Jesus from a ways off and think, oh, I want to get in on this action. They were not out seeking attention. They didn't want to be this. It's like, oh, there's a crowd of people. Let me come over and be in the middle of it. Maybe people, ooh, not me. No, they were brought to him. Well, who brought them? Their parents brought them. These parents, they have children who are, who are too young to know what they need. So what do the parents do? They bring them to Jesus. These are parents who have children that are too young to come on their own. So what do they do? They bring them to Jesus. These are parents who have children that are too young to perceive the blessing that comes in knowing Christ Jesus. So what do they do? They bring them to him. Parents, do you have any of these children in your home? Bring them to Jesus. And notice the parents didn't wait around for the disciples to bring their kids to Jesus. They didn't wait for Jesus to come over to them and tell them what to do. They took initiative and they brought their children to Jesus. Now, unfortunately, it can be all too easy as parents to see discipling young kids to see spiritual see their spiritual training and development as something that is best left to experts right i mean like let's just we'll read the book or we'll send them to this class or i'll go to this class or or they'll go to this and and that'll that'll fix them that'll set them straight but this discipleship this spiritual training is your god-given responsibility as parents this is what god calls parents to do we must know that, that the bringing cannot save your children. Bring your children to Jesus cannot save them. Only God can save them. But the bringing is what God calls us to do. And this has always been God's call to parents. You can think back to, to Deuteronomy 6. And in Deuteronomy 6, I'm going to turn there if you give me a moment. Deuteronomy 6, Moses is giving instruction to the people of Israel, to God's people. And he tells them in Deuteronomy 6, 4, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And then the Lord says this in his word, verse 7, You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on your, the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, a lot of that we can't relate to. We don't write things on our doorposts a lot, other than maybe the height of our children. But what God is communicating is that there should be this all-pervasive talking about God and what he has done and what he calls us to do in your homes. Talk about it all the time. When you're waking up, when you're sitting down for a meal, all the time, talk about these things. I heard one friend 
one time describe this task to me as, he said, every day I want to raise the God awareness in my home. I want to raise the God awareness in my home. I want my kids to be more aware of what God, who God is, how he is at work, what he is doing all around us every day. That's, that category has helped me. I just want to raise the God awareness. It's a very simple category to have as parents. I just want my kids to be more aware of God. We want to raise our children. We are to raise our children to know God, to love God, and to obey God. You may be wondering, how do I do this? This begins in the home. It begins with things like what we might call family worship, which might sound daunting to some. But all we're talking about is raising the God awareness in our home. We're talking about opening God's word together and reading from his word. One thing that I've enjoyed doing with our kids is we'll open up to Proverbs and we'll read together from a chapter in Proverbs. And Proverbs has some some wacky stuff, some interesting stuff, and it's full of wisdom. And we'll read Proverbs, and then we'll we'll just start by asking questions. And we'll have the kids, like, what stuck out to you? What do you remember? And if there was a lion that came up, normally that was one that would always come up. Oh, I like the verse with the lion in it. And then we'd go to, well, so what does that mean? What is God saying in that? And we'd, we'd talk about what wisdom looks like, what it looks like to fear the Lord, and just have conversations. We pray together. Pray, thank, give thanks to God before meals, before bed, when you wake up, when, you, when you're facing times of need, when you're going into circumstances, your child is going into circumstances where they are nervous. You pray. This should be a pervasive part of everyday life. But what I want to highlight for us as well is that parents are not on their own in this task. This is something that the church is brought into. The people of God are brought into. This is a task for all of us. So if you're sitting there without any kids and you're thinking, oh, this, this part doesn't apply to me, I'm good. No, this is something that you are called to. You have the joyful privilege and glorious responsibility to help in caring for the children of this flock. We all get to take part not only in teaching their minds but in shaping their hearts. And the primary place this, takes, this happens is in our weekly gatherings of corporate worship. You see, the gathered worship of the church is essential to the life of the church. It's here that we... Who we are is clearly seen. We give expression to who we are as the body of Christ. We are shaped by his word as we hear his word preached, as we're addressed through God's word. We are shaped in our responses to all that we face in life as we pray together and as we sing together. And this vocabulary is imparted to us. Words are put in our mouths as we sing these songs. And they're words that help us make sense of what we face around us, the suffering that we face the challenges that we face, and the hope that we have in Jesus. We learn and are reminded of what it means to be in Christ as we gather together. We're built into that. And we want to see our children brought into that. You know, as Christian parents, a lot of us can be concerned about how our children are influenced, and rightly so. We know that they are impressionable, that they are easily swayed by those around them. And because of this, There's all the more reason that we want our children to be influenced by the people of God. We want our children to be influenced, not just see mom and dad, but others listening to God's word, worshiping and praying and fellowshipping. I've shared this before, and I want to share it again. It's been, I don't know when the last time I shared it is. It's one of my favorite illustrations. I heard somebody one time say that we're a lot better at raising fans than we are at raising Christians. And so, I mean, you consider that for a moment. For me, I love baseball, and I particularly love Orioles baseball, and I want my kids to love Orioles baseball. 
and I want it to be a part of our, our home and our life and just something we enjoy together. And so when they were young, we would join the, uh, the dugout club, and we would go to some games together. And was it fun to go to those games? I mean, it was, parts of it were, but most of it was miserable. But I was happy to make that sacrifice. One, because I enjoy baseball. I love baseball myself. And then two, because I had this vision of this being a part of our life together. This being something that I was discipling them into. They were going to be a fans of this team. They were going to enjoy this game along with me. It was going to be just a part of who we are and what we do. And so I would do what I could to make it as enjoyable as possible. And so we would go and we would walk around Camden Yards and we'd find the playground and we'd play on the playground and we'd go and get uh, cotton candy. Don't ask my kids about any of this because I don't remember if I've done this or not. Cotton candy? I don't think so. They're shaking their heads. But, but you go and, I mean, you get the, get the soda or get the ice cream or whatever it is. You want it to be fun because of this vision that you have. But one thing that happens there, so I'm doing, making all of these sacrifices because of this vision that I have. But then on top of that, I'm doing it in the context of community because that, that's what a sporting event is. It's this group of people that gather together with this common interest, and they're encouraging one another in it. And so the other Orioles fans, they're also – happy to see my kid there it's not an inconvenience they're not annoyed they're not telling the kid to shut up I mean the the you'll see videos go viral every year where it's somebody catches a foul ball and they go and give it to the kid and the kid like cries and gives him hugs and makes his day but they're discipling and shaping these kids into this love for this game and they want it to be enjoyable for them all of this stuff happens in sports and you can there's a lot of application that you can make to it all this stuff happens And then oftentimes when we come into our times of corporate worship, I think that the mentality can be that this is for me and my kids should be somewhere else and get something for them. And I think there's something that is wrong about this, something that's misleading about this. The the people of God, we are are meant to be, I think, multi-generational. We are meant to be discipling one another, coming alongside one another as we seek to be conformed to the image of Christ our Savior. And so, Grace Church, I, I mean, just to commend you, I so appreciate how you all get this and you embrace this vision. Uh, but it's not easy. You all know it's not easy. Whether you have kids or not, it, there are challenges and distractions that come. But we do have this vision of seeing our children being brought to Jesus and growing in their knowledge of God, their love for God, their obedience of God. And may God give us grace to continue faithfully walking that road, and and may he save, save our children. So we looked at the priority of humility. We've talked about the, the place of parents in God's kingdom. And finally, I want us to consider the kindness of Jesus. Now, when we read God's word, it can be all too easy to read the Bible like we would read a self-help book. We just want to get to answering, like, what does this mean for me? How is this going to make me a better person or... Uh, make me feel better. In other words, we can read the Bible like it's all about us. And while it's true that we cannot read anything that's more relevant to us than the Bible is, the Bible is still not about me and you. The Bible is about God. It's about God and who he reveals himself to be. It's about God and how he purposes to work in the world that he has made. So when we read scripture, the most important question does not center on us, but on God. What does this say about God? Who does this text show God to be? And in this seemingly mundane, 
story. These simple three verses. This text reveals Jesus to be far more kind than we could ever expect a man like Jesus to be. Jesus does not see crowds around him and think, you know what, this would be really great for my image if I had these children come over to me. Maybe get a few pictures, kiss a few babies, shake a few hands. Like, my numbers are going to go way up. This is not a PR stunt for Jesus. He welcomes little children because this is who he is. He is compassionate. He is tender-hearted. He is kind. Now get this, there is no one glorious as Jesus is. No one who is like him. Remember who he is? Remember how Colossians 1, 15-17 describes him. Jace read this earlier. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And as I like to point out often, that Greek word for all that's used there, do you know what it means? It means all, everything. All things were created through him and for him. Who's like him? He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Verse 19 says, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So there's this man standing in the midst of these crowds, and in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That's crazy. But this is who he is. He is the radiance of the glory of God. But that's not all. While this is who Jesus is, there is no one. Get this. I mean, this is mind-blowing. When you step back, step back and think about it, we just described who Jesus is, the radiance of the glory of God. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. But there is no one who is as approachable as he is. No one who is as accessible as he is. Think about how difficult it can be to approach the rich and the famous and the powerful of this world. Right? I mean, people try to have those chance encounters or, or not so chance encounters and try and try and try to meet the rich and the famous and the powerful of this world. But here is Jesus. There is none more powerful. And he says, let the little children come to me. You see, Jesus is in the business of welcoming the weak, in sustaining the suffering, in looking out for the lowly. So, brothers and sisters, let us come to him. Hear Jesus' invitation. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In 1740, Jonathan Edwards, I'm going to close with this, he, he preached a sermon. Jonathan Edwards was a pastor in Massachusetts, preached a sermon to the children of his congregation. And his main point was to stress just one truth. And he said, children ought to love the Lord Jesus Christ above all things in the world. That's all he wanted to convey. Children ought to love the Lord Jesus Christ above all things in the world. What was the primary basis that Edwards gave? What should motivate this love above all else? Edwards didn't go to God's greatness, but to God's goodness. He says, everything that is lovely, everything that is lovely in God is in Christ. And everything that is or can be lovely in any man is in him. 
For he is man as well as God, and he is the holiest, meekest, most humble, and in every way the most excellent man that ever was. Children, did you hear that? He is the most excellent man that ever was. Parents, did you hear that? He is the most excellent man that ever was. Fully God, fully man. And as parents, as a church, what we and our children need more than anything else is to behold how wonderful Jesus is, how kind he is, how welcoming he is, how good he is. And that is what we see here in this text, and that is what we are called to do. So let us come to him and find our rest in him. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word. Every page that we turn to, something is to be seen of your glory and your goodness to us. Lord, may we, as parents and as adults, know your goodness. And may the coming generation and generations of this church know your goodness. Lord, we want to welcome children as you welcome children. And we want to receive your grace as you have called us to receive your grace. So would you help us, Lord? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.